This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Our Moral Responsibility to Children, recorded May 24, 1998, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Well, I'm sure that uh, most of you know that on last Thursday, May 21, 1998, this disgruntled teenager... 15-year-old boy, shot his parents and then went to his high school, Thurston High School, and shot 20 students, killing two of them. And normally, uh, we don't talk about current events here at the Center on Sunday morning. Uh, there's plenty of opportunity for us to do that in our everyday lives, particularly in this society. Uh, so normally we set aside Sunday morning to talk about deeper currents, if you like, in our lives, to talk about our spiritual nature and our ultimate happiness. And there's not much opportunity to do that in this society. So it's a good thing we do this. However, occasionally uh, events happen that show us in a very dramatic way how our spiritual concerns intersect with our everyday concerns. Of course, they do, or they should be doing that all the time, and that's part of a spiritual practice, is to find those connections in oh, even the very little things we do. But sometimes these uh, events just uh, cannot be ignored. Uh, I was watching a video of Thich Nhat Hanh, the uh, Vietnamese uh, Zen Buddhist uh, monk, and he was talking about if you are in a temple, and there are bombs going off outside and people are being killed, the uh, correct thing to do is not sit there in meditation, but you go out and you help the people who are being injured and killed. And in a certain sense, this is a, a sign of bombs going off around us, This uh, what happened at Thurston High School. It, uh, it's particularly so because it's not just an isolated event in this nation. We, we all know from the last couple of years, this has been happening with increasing frequency. So I thought maybe we'd begin by reading a part of the editorial in our local newspaper, the Register Guard, that appeared the uh, day after the shooting. What makes kids do these horrible things? Not many do, of course, but it takes only one to get your attention. It's often part of the story that they want attention, perhaps desperately. We may hear more about that as we learn, learn more about the background of Kipland Kinkle, the accused Springfield shooter, who apparently killed his own parents before turning his murderous attentions on his school. Two aspects of American life are, are most often blamed for school-related violence. One is the ubiquity of firearms and the ease with which juveniles can lay their hands on guns. The other is the surfeit of violence in popular culture everything from music to television and movies. But those of us who live in Eugene, Springfield area don't want to debate social theories right now. We are sad and dismayed and wish this calamity had passed us by. We knew such a thing could happen here. We just never thought it would. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, I've told the story before and some of you have heard it, but it's worth repeating. This takes place in a Zen, um, on a Zen retreat back in Japan in the old days. And this Zen master was holding a retreat for his students, very much the way we go to Cloud Mountain here. 
And they got into the retreat, I think it was a summer-long retreat, and they discovered one of their members was a thief. He was caught stealing from another monk. And so they caught him, and they reported to the Zen master, and he said, hmm, okay. And, but he didn't do anything. So they went along a while longer, and the, the, uh, they caught this guy again, stealing something else. And they come back to the Zen master, and they say, hey, this guy's a barracks thief. You know, he's a real problem, Zen master. Hmm, but doesn't do anything. So finally they catch the guy a third time, and now all the monks get together and they sign a petition saying either uh, the Zen master is going to expel this thief or they're all going to leave en masse. They're not going to put up with this anymore. So he calls an assembly and he says to them, well, uh, all you uh, monks, if you want to leave, that's okay. You know something about the Dharma. You know something about reality. Uh, you know something about life. But this poor brother doesn't even know the difference between right and wrong. So he needs me more than all of you. And, of course, the, um, the end of the story is the, the monk who's a thief suddenly realizes how much the Zen master loves them and becomes his best disciple or whatever. But I think this is an interesting story because it's pointing to what is lacking in this monk. He doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. And in the Register Guard, if you notice, they suggested three factors that might have contributed to this young man's behavior. One was psychological. He wanted attention. Uh, The other was political, the availability of guns. That's a political issue. I mean, we could solve that politically one way or another. And then the last is social, uh, the violence in our pop culture, in the music, on television, and so forth. And I'm not saying that any of these three factors might be very important. But this interesting to me is what was left out. And that was the moral factor. There is no mention of maybe the kid did not know the difference between right and wrong. Maybe nobody taught him the difference between right and wrong. And as I read through, and I've read almost every article in the Register Guard now about this, I've never heard this mentioned once. And it is interesting because up until about the middle of this century, uh, the moral development of a child was a vital part of education. At least it was considered so. If you go back and read... Uh, books about education prior to the 40s or or the 50s anyway, you will find a lot of talk about moral development, the moral education of the child, the moral development, character development, things like that. And you don't hear that anymore in the culture. And this has been true, by the way, of all cultures. Uh, Moral development of the child in whatever the moral system, that culture, that has been a vital part of how you bring up a child. I was reading uh, this book on Mesoamerican spirituality, the spirituality of the uh, Aztec, Mayan cultures, the Middle American peoples. And these are records they have from, you know, pre-Columbian days. And there was this beautiful uh, four little things about what a father says to his daughter, what a mother says to the daughter, what the father says to the son what the mother says to the son. Totally different culture. And these are nobles talking to the children of nobility, aristocracy. I mean, a lot of the values are not values we would want to honor today, but 
these little speeches has two things about them. One is they begin with these expressions of love that just make you want to cry. Oh, my, my precious necklace of pearls, my little dove, my this and that, and you know. And then they go on to say how tough life is. This is basically a place of suffering. And we have some happiness through food and stuff like that, but we have to recognize that fundamentally it's a place of suffering. And then what is expected of you? What is expected of you by the family, by the community, by the gods? So you know your place in the world. Somebody, several of you mentioned kids don't know who they are, their place in the world. You grew up knowing this, and you grew up knowing what is right and what is wrong. And the basic assumption of all these cultures is the children don't know automatically what's right and wrong. They have to be taught. They have to be trained. In fact, in a lot of cultures, in most cultures, there's actually some idea that although our ultimate nature is good, that we are born into delusion, as the Hindus say, or we are born into original sin, as the Christian uh, uh, traditional Christian messages, and, and here you can read sin as a, a misperception. We don't know. It's an ignorance. And so, if anything, uh, we have a tendency towards self-centered behavior. That if you just let a child run wild, they grow up to be a little animal. And that's that's been the attitude in other cultures. Now, if we can trace to some extent, the history of the development of modern ideas of education and bringing up children. And a lot of them go back to uh, the 18th century, when the materialist paradigm became dominant, at least among the educated classes, uh, there was a reaction, and that was called the Romantic Movement. And a lot of the Romantic poets, perhaps you're familiar with Wadsworth and so forth. And this was... Um, a kind of substitute spirituality that you no longer could believe in God. It's a material universe, so you can no longer believe in the old-fashioned sort of God. So, in a certain sense, nature takes over the role of God. And there was a lot of interest in primitive peoples and this idea that they were the noble savage and that they're born pure and that uh, they're corrupted by society. Society has corrupted us. One of the great exponents of this was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a French philosopher, uh, and he was really one of the major ones who kicked off this romantic movement. And the idea was uh, that, uh, as I said, that basically his whole idea is that we are born pure, and then society, the rules, and the authority, and all that, and society corrupts us. In fact, I'm going to read you something that he wrote. This is in the 1700s. And he wrote a lot about education, specifically. And this is about educating children. Let us lay it down as an incontrovertible rule that the first impulses of nature are always right. There is no original sin in the human heart. Never punish your pupil, for he does not know what it means to do wrong. Never make him say, forgive me. Wholly immoral in his actions, he can do nothing morally wrong, and he deserves neither punishment nor reproof. First, leave the germ of his character free to show itself. Do not constrain him in anything, so you will be better see him as he really is. Now, you know, this sounds quite modern. I mean, there is a, not everybody, but there's a big strain in modern educational theory 
that you leave children alone. They're naturally good, and they'll grow up, and you support them. You never punish them, never deny them anything. Don't interfere with them, and everything's going to be okay. This is an oversimplification because Rousseau himself actually did believe in God, and he did believe he had to morally educate the children eventually. Uh, so I'm taking this out of context, so this doesn't isn't doing him complete justice, but this the germ of this idea got started there. And then by the end of the, or middle of the 19th century, a lot of the, these ideas, theories, educational theories is what they are, that came out of the Romantic movement were stripped of all sense of spirituality, were taken over completely uh, by hard-headed materialists of various stripes, Marxists, of various sorts of socialists, anarchists, uh, other sorts of utopians. There are all these utopian movements that grew up in the 19th century. And a major part of uh, their uh, program was this a modern education system based on this idea that kids are born pure and good and that society corrupts them. So if, if you basically sort of just leave kids alone and foster their native talents, th there'll be no problem. So... We might call this today the secular left. I, I tried to pick a, put together two terms here so it would be something neutral. And, you know, the secular left controls education and, and a large part of media in this country. I know I sound like a fundamentalist preacher here, but it happens to be true. I know from the 60s, I know these people very well, by the way, because I was one of them, because as a Maoist, I, you, you couldn't be more of a secular lefty than me. Uh, and when the movement in the 60s uh, sort of started to fall apart, uh, half of my friends went in to become teachers. They all went and joined teaching programs. And they, they, a lot of them came from academia. They were Berkeley students, and, you know, they went back into academia. And I, I'm not involved with academia, but, you know, occasionally I get these articles, uh, some stuff from Jennifer, and I hear these theories being put forth process education or whatever, and I've read a little bit about it, this whole political correctness debate and stuff. Well, I know these people very well. These are all the people that we were revolutionaries together. So the problem is that this theory is based on certain fundamental worldview assumptions about life. And these include, well, they start with the fact that we are purely biological beings, that, that everything really reduces to, to physical, chemical reactions uh, and uh, biology. Even our psychology reduces to uh, genetics, biological impulses, uh, influences that have, uh, are mediated through physical reactions. So because we are physical beings, we are totally shaped by physical forces, whether they're internal in terms of genetics or external in terms of the environment. As biological beings, our happiness, of course, can't consist in discovering anything spiritual about ourselves. The only possible form of happiness we can have is the satisfaction of biological needs. Because there's no such thing as a spiritual reality or human beings have no spiritual component, moral laws are considered totally subjective. They're not objective like the laws of science rooted in the universe. They're just human inventions, and basically all they are is sort of rules of conduct that we human beings have invented in order that we can better satisfy our biological needs. The goal here is to have social harmony so we can produce all these goods and we can share them and all be happy. There's no other dimension to 
moral considerations or morality. And finally, because we are basically physical, biological beings that are shaped by physical forces, if we change the physical forces around us, that will solve all the problems. The problems of antisocial behavior, aggression, and so forth arise out of the fact that people's physical, biological needs aren't being satisfied. So therefore, we need programs that make sure everybody's physical needs are satisfied. And once everybody's physical needs are satisfied, then there will be no problem. Nobody will be antisocial. So as a result, we take antisocial behavior and all that out of the realm of morality. It has nothing to do with morality anymore. And then moral education of children gets replaced by things like values clarification. I've got a book on values clarification. This is a handbook of practical strategies for teachers and students. Let me read you a little bit of the back of it, one paragraph here about this book. Designed to engage students and teachers in the active formulation and examination of values, this book is unique in content and format. It does not teach a particular set of values. There is no sermonizing or moralizing. The goal is to involve students in practical experiences, making them aware of their own feelings, their own ideas, their own beliefs, so that the choices and decisions they make are conscious and deliberate, based on their own value systems. Now, I must say, my first reaction, if, if this had been 15, 20 years ago, it sounds pretty good, kind of interesting, you know what? And then you go through, and what happens is the teacher uh, raises questions and guides discussions, and here's the kinds of questions, how you can evaluate how clear and strong your own personal values are. So there are questions like, are you proud of your position? Have you publicly affirmed your position? Have you chosen your positions from alternatives? Have you chosen your position after thoughtful considerations of the pros and cons and consequences? Have you chosen your position freely? Have you acted or done anything about your beliefs? Have you acted with repetition, pattern, or consistency on this issue? And then you go through various issues and you make this grid up and depending if, you know, if you've really affirmed publicly, you get, I don't know, a 10, and if you've never said anything, you get a 1 or some sort of scale like that. And so this helps you clarify your values. And as I say, they don't teach you any set of values here. Now, uh, a number of years ago, I don't think it was in this book, Jennifer had gotten some of these things and the, she was taking this course at Lane Community College, and they did some of this value clarification or value evaluation or whatever they called it. Anyway, she brought home some of these kinds of tests, and we ran Hitler through. Guess what he scored? <laughs> a 10. No, he had all these things. He had very strong beliefs that he held very clearly. He had chosen them out of a field of various possible beliefs at the time. You know, Germany at that time, there were communists around, there was the Catholic Church, uh, there were Christian Democrats, and a lot of things you could be besides a Nazi. Um, he wasn't indoctrinated to be a Nazi, you know, he invented it, basically. Uh, he affirmed it publicly. He acted consistently, and, you know, uh, and the man scored a 10. Now, something's wrong with this. Do you see, do you see the point I'm trying to get out here? It sounds nice, 
but something's missing in this. From a spiritual point of view, I got to tell you, this is a, a, a real abdication of a generational responsibility to transmit moral values. This book represents that. The teacher's not going to transmit any values. The teacher's going to sit back and play games with these kids. And it's all based on this assumption that the, their native thing is going to be good. I'd be, I'd be very interested to see what happens if, if they got a Hitler in the class, you know. And these days, I don't know, this came out, these days, you know, there are a lot of Hitlers uh, germinating out there. Interesting uh, word. What? Germinating. Germinating. No, I'm serious, you know. Uh, uh, I and uh, Mike uh, over here for a while, Mike's still involved with this group called iGeek. Interfaith Global Ed <coughs> Ethics, Ethics Education, Education Committee. And we had this program where we were going to Skipworth, which is the local juvenile detention center, and every uh, three months or so we put on a program about moral values. And it was Mike and I and people from various other uh, traditions, a Jew and a Baha'i, and occasionally there was a Christian with us or a Hindu and whatever. And one of the things that we discovered right away is uh, they had no idea what we're talking about. They had no idea what we're talking about. To, to the point where twice, on different occasions, different kids uh, asked me, or asked us as a group, what the word immorality meant. One of our points was sexual immorality. They weren't asking what is sexually moral and immoral. They didn't know the, what the word immorality meant. It was not in the vocabulary, just not in the vocabulary of these kids. It was amazing how, how uh, things have changed. Let me tell you, uh, having said all this, it's not that I personally don't share a lot of the concerns of the secular left uh, about uh, legislation and social programs and whatever. And many mystics in the past have been concerned about society, the condition of society, justice in society, peace in society, all those things. They're not, I'm not saying that they aren't important. Uh, you know, the whole Bhagavad Gita is about the necessity to uphold justice in the society. And Jesus' teachings are all about uh, you know, peace and giving to the poor and spreading the wealth around. That's part of what his teachings are about. I should take that back. It's not what they're all about by any means. Uh, Muhammad was a political and social revolutionary of his time. But the big problem is here is that political actions, social programs, can alleviate suffering. They can help, but they cannot make us happy, ultimately. They can't do it. Because we're not just biological, physical beings. We are spiritual beings... And our ultimate happiness depends on our realizing our spiritual nature. Just that. And because we're spiritual beings, we are rooted in that spirit, God, Buddha nature, consciousness, which gives rise to this whole universe, this whole cosmos. We have a direct connection to the core and the heart of everything. And because of that, we are not just Pavlovian dogs that are shaped by our physical surroundings. We may have very little control over our physical destiny. 
In fact, most of us have far less control over it than we imagine. In this culture, we have an inflated idea of our control over physical destiny. But in fact, you don't even control your own body, except to a very small extent. You know, it's got a, it's got a time in it. It grows up, it gets old, and it dies. And it gets sick along the way and all that. And there's nothing you can do about anything ultimately about that. But we are completely responsible for our spiritual destiny. And that means our own ultimate happiness. And this is true no matter how bad our physical conditions are. And I'm going to give you one example of this. I'm going to read you something by Eddie Hillison, some of you know her already, who wrote this from a concentration camp under the Nazis. She died ultimately at Auschwitz. And here's what she says. We may, of course, be sad and depressed by what has been done to us. That is only human and understandable. However, our great injury is one we inflict upon ourselves. I find life beautiful and I feel free. The sky within me is as wide as the one stretching above my head. Life is hard, but that is not a bad thing. If one starts by taking one's own importance seriously, the rest follows. It is not morbid individualism to work on oneself. We carry everything within us, God and heaven and hell and earth and life and death and all of history. The externals are simply so many props. Everything we need is within us. Now, this is extraordinary, especially given the fact she's writing this in a concentration camp. If anybody has a right to feel victimized, it's somebody in a concentration camp. Here we have the most horrible situation of actual outside forces confining and oppressing an individual. But she can recognize that, that, that yes, this is all true. She's not denying that the awful things aren't going on, but that the secret lies within us. We are responsible. We have everything within us that we need, even when we're in a concentration camp, to be happy. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But this is the witness and the message of the mystics. That's the first thing that's missing here, a business about responsibility. We do not teach kids, you are, and this is really truly honoring kids, honoring every human being. You yourself, if you like, you are a spark of that divine spirit. There's something irreducible in you that enjoys the freedom that is God's that no one can take away from you, and no one can really ultimately influence. We can influence around it. Do you know what I mean? We can help. We can make uh, physical conditions better. We can give an education all that. But you cannot get to that core of a person and, and uh, impose your will on them, either as an individual parent or anything else, or as a society. We cannot shape everybody's destiny just by rearranging the furniture. Human beings have something to say about it. Each of us has something to say about it, and our children have something to say about it. And that's that. we honor that by telling them that and holding them responsible. Uh, we dishonor it when we deny that they have any responsibility, that they're just a product of their environment, or they're just a product of their genes. It is true that there are extreme cases where people can have physical ailments where they just cannot control some behaviors and whatnot. Uh, and, and that spark can be, uh, you know, almost totally hidden. But it nevertheless, it's there someplace. 
And we do hold people to responsible to different degrees. And we do this instinctively. Uh, you don't hold a two-year-old to the same standard of responsibility. You hold a five-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old. It's supposed to be increasing standards of responsibility. That is part of the moral training. And it's a fundamental part of the moral training. Also, because we are spiritual beings, rooted at the very core of the cosmos, in the reality of the cosmos itself, our actions have cosmic consequences. They are not just uh, some little social uh, consequences, a little ripple here. What the boy who did the shootings of Thurston did, yes, it, it, it had severe consequences for this community, for the society, for friends, family, and all that. And it's going to have consequences for him as well. He's going to serve time, and uh, he may never get out of jail at all. I think he's not eligible for the death penalty, but uh, I don't know what his sentence is going to be. But those are even really not the important consequences. Those are just the surface consequences, truly speaking. Because we are spiritual beings, there is a spiritual law just as objective as any law of science. It's a, a universal moral law, and it's expressed in different ways by different traditions. But you'll find it in all spiritual traditions. For Christians and Jews, it's said in the Bible, most simply and most beautifully, as you sow, so shall you reap. And then it can be expressed in all sorts of mythologies about heaven and hell and all that, but these are just ways of vividly portraying to you the fact that your actions do really have consequences in terms of your happiness and your suffering. In the East, it's the law of karma. Here's the way Buddha expressed it. The doer of evil deeds reaps suffering here and hereafter. The doer of good deeds reaps happiness here and hereafter. This is not some god up there punishing you for being a good person or a bad person. In karma, there's no idea of god at all. It's, it's actually a less mythological, pure way of stating the law. It's the same law. As you sow, so shall you reap. It's just built into the nature of things. Why is it built in that way? You might say, well, that's a cruel way to build the world or something, as though somebody built it that way. Is that we are the world, ultimately. You see, we're not actually strangers here. We are actually the world. So what we do, naturally, what goes out comes back. We can't avoid it. Rumi puts this really beautifully. Rumi is a Sufi from the Islamic tradition. The world is like a mountain. Whatever you say, good or evil, will come back to you. If you imagine you spoke beautifully, but the mountain returned an ugly echo, that would be absurd. So we have the idea you're, you're facing a big mountain, and you yell out, Oh, you beautiful mountain! And then the mountain would not yell back to you, Oh, you ugly mountain! The mountain's going to yell back to you, Oh, you beautiful mountain! Uh... If a nightingale should sing to the mountain, does it give back the sound of a crow or an ass? So when you come to the mountain, speak sweetly. Why do you bray like an ass? Well, the world is our mountain, and what we say, what we do, how we relate to it, is what we're going to experience. It's not just that we're going to suffer physically, and this is very important. Often, People do very bad things and get rich 
and seem to have a wonderful life. They retire on the Riviera, they go skiing in the Alps, and everybody says, oh, you see that? Crime pays. <laughs> it's, it's how we feel inside is the kind of suffering and happiness we're talking about. That's why Eddie Hillison can be happy in a concentration camp, and Howard Hughes, the millionaire, can be absolutely miserable, surrounded with all his millions. As Eddie says, the externals are really just props. They help us play the game, but that is not where happiness or suffering comes from. Okay, so then if we are responsible for our actions, and our actions will produce consequences, what are right actions and what are wrong actions? Good and evil, good and bad. Now, again, here it's true that if you look at different traditions, the details will differ from one tradition to another. And uh, sometimes uh, the materialists have jumped to this and say, well, this proves there's no objective standard whatsoever. Because, for instance, in, in uh, Islam, alcohol is forbidden, but polygamy is permitted. In Christianity, uh, alcohol, most, for most Christians, is permitted, but polygamy isn't. You know, so where is the objectivity here, people say? Where is, you know, this and that? Well, there are, in cultures, various prescriptions that are tailored to a particular time and place and people and so forth. But if you look deeper, if you look at the major issues, so to speak, and not confuse what's minor and major and have a little common sense about this, they all agree. <coughs> they all agree. I mentioned earlier that uh, Mike and I were involved in this iGeek, and the reason iGeek got started is because at the last Parliament of World Religions held in Chicago in 1993, a document was presented called the Global Ethic. And it has four simple points, and representatives of all the world's religions signed on. That doesn't mean that everybody in all the religions would agree to the way it's stated and written. It's stated in very liberal, lefty sort of terms. But the fundamental principles are found in every single tradition. And you don't even have to rely on this document. You just go research it yourself. Don't kill. And the positive correlation is that. Have respect for life. Don't steal. Deal honestly and fairly with people. Don't lie. Speak and act truthfully. And don't commit sexual immorality. Respect and love one another you will not find a spiritual, religious tradition that does not have these precepts in one form or another. Perhaps the one that's most uh, up in the air for us now in this protect, uh, present time is the sexual morality one, because so many physical things have changed. Uh, we have birth control now. We have... Uh, uh, women are able to work and support a family economically, and uh, all sorts of things have changed, which have changed the nature of our sexuality. A lot of the old sexual rules were written really to guard women and protect children, to make sure children weren't born in situations where they couldn't be raised properly. So now we have, okay, a sexual revolution. So what is, you know, why, what do you tell your teenage daughter? Well, why shouldn't I have sex? I'm not going to get pregnant. I know how to take care of myself or something. But all we have to do is look at sex and look at what causes suffering and what doesn't. It's not that complicated. You know, you don't force sex on anyone against their will. You don't rape, you don't intimidate people to, to have sex with you, right? 
you do take responsibility for your sexual behavior and you don't bring children into the world that you have no intention of supporting. Which is particularly something that young men should be taught today. You take responsibility for transmitting sexual diseases. You don't use sex to manipulate people. It can get more subtle. But these, you know, there's not a big mystery about what is right and what is wrong sexually, even in our culture. And the big thing is to look at what hurts people. At least that's the bottom line. You know, the bottom, I mean, the, the, the minimum in any sort of morality is at least do no harm. That's the starting point. That's not the end of it, but that's the starting point. And also, in all these traditions, uh, and mystical traditions anyway, you will find that there is a meta-principle that can guide your actions in any situation. And that is, the more selfish you behave, the more suffering you will have. The more selflessly you behave, the more happiness you will have. If we could quantify these things, you could make a mathematical ratio out of it. And the reason this is true is selfish action, self-centered action, action that only looks at yourself, get what I can get, is based on a delusion. That is that you are some limited self-being. And selfless action is based on the reality that you are not some limited self-being. That ultimately, you are that consciousness, that spirit, that is at the heart of the whole world. So, if you act based on delusion, no wonder you're going to suffer. If, you, if your actions are based on reality, then you're not going to suffer. Then you're going to find happiness. This is the, the uh, whole message of, uh, I, shouldn't, I keep saying the whole, this is a major part of the message of Taoism. The sage acts in conformity to the Tao. Acts in, in, in uh, conforming to reality. The Tao generates the 10,000 beings, the myriad creatures, and asks no reward and takes no credit. So that's how the sage behaves. So the sage helps people and asks no reward and takes no credit. You read through the Tao. The Tao Te Ching is a very, very moral book. It was very popular in the 60s in my generation because it seemed to be sort of amoral. You know, just go with the flow and do whatever you want. You read it carefully. Everything that's recommended is imitating nature, and nature is selfless, and so the sage is selfless. Half the book is about how, how you can discover reality, and the other half of the book is about how to live morally in relation to reality. Here's what Rumi said. Purify yourself from the attributes of self so that you may see your own pure essence. And now we're really getting to the heart of what morality is all about. It's not a, 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 just social rules of conduct. It's something, in a certain sense, you do for yourself. Mystics would be uh, act morally even if they were on a desert island with no other human beings around. They're not just rules we made up to have a harmony. It's, it, it, in a, to put it crudely, it's in your interest to be moral. It's, it's through this learning, learning we have to learn to act selflessly to be generous, compassionate, all that, that we begin to see that true nature, realize that true nature. God tells Catherine of Siena, it is by that death of self-will that she realizes her union with me, and in no other way could she perfectly accomplish this. 
that self-centeredness, that self-will, that I'm going to get what I want and screw everybody else. Here's the Hasidic uh, master, uh, Menahem Nahum. He writes, The truth is, however, that the real fulfilling of any commandment lies in becoming attached to God or joined together. Thus, the commandment is rewarded by the nearness to God that the one who performs it feels, the joy of spirit that lies within the deed. So he's saying, uh, from a Jewish point of view, from a Hasidic point of view, a mystical point of view, you're not performing commandments uh, to get some reward later on. You know, if I do uh, a good a mitzvah today, then, you know, tomorrow I'm going to get uh, win the lottery or something. It's the doing of the deed that the joy comes from, the happiness comes from. It's in letting go of self. Because when you really start to let go of self, what you realize is, what are you letting go of? You're just letting go of suffering. You got to think of that worry, that anxiety, that concern. What's going to happen to me? Oh, how poor me. Oh, victim. Oh, this. And it's joyful to let that go. That is our suffering. You just let it go. This is why the Buddhists say, the reason the Buddha made keeping the precepts so important was not so much for ethical reasons as for its bearing on mind development and its goal of attainment of highest cognition and enlightenment. One cannot progress towards this goal if he is living a wicked or self-indulgent life. Now, all this is what's missing from our education, really, of children. We sometimes teach morality in terms of uh, ethics, of, you know, do unto others so they'll do, do unto you. This, that's not untrue, although it's not infallible. Kids learn very quickly that, you know, you don't always get rewarded for doing something. So if that's your only reason, you might just as well assume, well, why not, why wait for some utopia when everybody's being nice to each other? I'll just get mine now, especially since all I have to think about is this life. And some of you mentioned knowing kids, they don't even, don't even think about their whole life. They just, they're thinking about this moment or the next moment or next week or whether they're going to get their Nikes or not. The point is, from a, a spiritual point of view, and from particularly from a mystic's point of view, the moral law is something objective. It's something that we, as a race, the human race, has discovered. It's part of our collective heritage. It's part of our global spiritual culture. And it's something that it is our duty to transmit to uh, the next generation, to our children. We don't say to our children, oh, we're not going to tell you any about the laws of science. You discover it for yourself. We don't tell our children, oh, we're not going to tell you how to uh, invent the wheel because we want you to, you know, have that experience of inventing the wheel. No, we teach them what we have, uh, as, a, as a race, have struggled to learn. Are still learning, by the way. By no means have learned the, really the lesson. And we see it proved all the time. Our most precious heritage, science is secondary to this, to pass it on. We don't ask them to reinvent morality in their own. We, we tell them what we know now. 
we ask them to test it. Just the way it's in science. You know, a science teacher gets up and says, here's, I'm telling you Newton's laws and so forth, and then they, the class spends the time testing to see if it's true. Every generation has to test. And you don't have to worry about that. They will. I was a kid. I don't have kids, but I was a kid once. Uh, it's an infallible law of childhood, almost. They will test the rules. They will test what's right and wrong. And they might go through a, a period of rebellion, and they might break every rule that they can possibly think of. That's part of the testing, as long as it doesn't get out of hand. But at least you've given them something to test. And this is what's so important. If you don't transmit it, there's nothing to test. And so at least they know what they're doing in their behavior instead of stumbling around in a moral vacuum like uh, that poor Zen monk was, doesn't even know the difference between right and wrong, and perhaps that kid of Thurston was doing. So that's my little sermon for the morning. And uh, we want to, how are we doing time-wise as well? Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? If anybody wants to hang around a little bit and talk about it more, uh, you're welcome to. So until we see you again, peace. And uh, if you want to have some tea or check out the library, of course, feel free to do that. <laughs>